0: Welcome to New Books in Secularism. My name is Annie Sapukaya, and today we are talking to John Loftus, author of The Outsider Test for Faith How to Know Which Religion is True. John is a former Christian minister and apologist with a master's, a master's of divinity and master's of theology degrees in philosophy, theology, and the philosophy of religion from Lincoln Christian Seminary and Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. While in school, John majored under Dr. William Lane Craig, the infamous leading evangelical apologist and debater. John also studied in a Ph.D. program at Marquette University for a year and a half in the area of theology and ethics. John has written several books, including Why I Became an Atheist, A Former Preacher Rejects Christianity, and, the one we're talking about today, The Outsider Test for Faith, How to Decide Which Religion is True, both published by Prometheus Books. He has also edited two other books, The Christian Delusion, Why Faith Fails, and The End of Christianity, and co-written a debate book with Dr. Randall Rouser titled God or Godless, to be, pu- to be published in 2013 by Baker Books. We are here today at New Books and Secularism talking to John W. Loftus, author of The Outsider Test for Faith, How to Know Which Religion is True. John, thank you so much for being on today.
1: Well, thanks for asking me.
0: Um, To start off, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this book?
1: I'm a former Christian minister and um, student (laughs) and teacher in different uh, colleges. I have a few master's degrees. I I thought I would just pick them up all along the way. Um, I I got (laughs) an MA, and that wasn't good enough, so... I got an M.D.V., and um, there was one more on the way to a Ph.D., and so I got a Master of Theology, all on my way to getting a Ph.D., and by the time I got into the Ph.D. study, I, so I was quite worn out uh, from getting all those Master's degrees, even though I was, even though I was really... Uh, I only lacked a dissertation, basically, and maybe a couple of classes, and... Um, <laughs> and uh proficiency in two other languages. I was already proficient in Greek and Hebrew, but they wanted me to be proficient in French and uh German too. So I, I was just lacking a little bit to get the PhD and I just got completely uh worn out. <laughs> so I had some degrees behind me and you know, in the ministry uh about fourteen years in the uh, Church of Christ. It's the uh Campbellite version of um uh, the, the Christian Church. There's three, three different versions of it. So one is the non-instrumental. That wasn't us. Uh, one's called the conservative centrists. That was us. And then there are the liberal uh, disciples of Christ. Uh, that oh, those are the bad guys. You see. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah. And um, you know I, um, you know taught ethics and uh, you know, philosophy, Western lit, and uh, some apologetics classes for, you know, Great Lakes um, Christian College and Lincoln Christian University. And, you know, it just seemed uh, to me that uh, (laughs) the more I knew and the more I experienced life, the less I could believe. (laughs) It doesn't always happen that way to everybody, but it did with me.
0: (laughs) That, That must have been pretty convenient for a religious minister to figure that out. Well, it was hard.
1: I mean, it was it was gut-wrenching. I would uh, spend nights, you know, walking, you know, a little subdivision and, uh, you know, praying, thinking and, and talking. <coughs> Excuse me. And, you know, it was just <laughs> gut-wrenching everything I'd put, you know, my time into for, oh, I don't know, maybe 20 years, 25 years or something like that. You know, given my um, early Christian conversion at about the age of 17 or so, and uh, about 18, and you know my upbringing in the Catholic Church, that um, you know all of a sudden it'd be wrong.
0: So it must have been a really hard time for
1: you. Yeah, it was gut wrenching. It's it's very hard to to realize after all of your studies and uh, all, all of your plans. I mean, I was I was going to change the world, you see, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um. And uh, you know, I just realized that the world changed me. I guess you know that my studies did. You know, so that's that's a little bit about my background. I um, and you know, in in one way, uh, I uh, have spent uh, now approximately forty years on a delusion. First, you know, as a as a student, as a believer, and as a minister and an educator, and and now as as a debunker, <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, you know, I'm I'm still spending my time on this delusion, and it's maddening, you know. <laughs> people, people, yeah. people say, "Why don't you just walk away from it?" You know, and I, you know, I, I, I tried for six years. I just kind of ignored everything and just got on with life. And um, but um, you know, I, I got too much uh, information, and uh, you know, if if everybody walked away from the faith, and just went on to, uh, you know, make some money and raise families, and and you know, that's you can't do that too. But just if you if you focused on that, then those of us who have left the faith, uh, you know, we, we have a lot of information to share, and it'd be wasting that. Uh, it'd be wasting what we know. Right. Yeah. So, so um, you know, I, I I spent forty years on a delusion, and it's I figure it's time to pay it back.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you can't get other people
1: to spend a little bit less time on that. Yeah. Yeah. It's. Uh, yeah. I want to. I want to g- give this delusion the, the the trashing it deserves for 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 you know basically quote quote unquote wasting my forty years of my life, <laughs> the only one I'll ever have. So yeah. um, you know, and, and uh, there's a little bit of frustration. You know uh, sometimes in in uh and maybe because uh, because of that, I mean, I kind of wonder sometimes well <laughs> in weren't yeah. for this delusion you know that I wasted my well uh, quote unquote, I always say quote unquote wasting is um yes. you know what what could I have done <laughs> but here I am, this is my lot in life, and uh you know that's um that's that's just what you know I've chosen to do, and you know I'm delighted that you know what I say what I write helps people out of this delusion the earlier the better so that they can get it on with their lives. <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's um it's interesting that you say that because I feel a bit like when I was younger I was quite religious as well. Um I mean I'm only thirty one, but I was quite religious too, and then sort of when I hit my twenties I started to really doubt. Uh, and a lot of the doubt came from reading, you know, people like you. I mean, I think that you probably wrote a little bit after that time, but um, you know, it, it is really a helpful thing to read other people's work uh, especially as a young person because you kind of see how you know you don't want to spend your whole life trying to go down this path that you know ultimately you're not going to be able to reconcile uh, those gaps. Right. So, uh, I appreciate that. I appreciate people like you who do come out and tell their story because it's not easy.
1: And everybody has their part to play. I mean your your podcasts sure. you know are, are helping change people's minds too. You You know you never know I mean I'm sure you get some uh, thanks from people. Uh, I, I, You know, it's just every, everybody has a part to play in. And the, the, the Internet is really a major source of information for believers. You know, I, it's funny, you know, I have a blog called Debunking Christianity, and uh, I've got some posts on there, you know, and some of them are titled provocatively, like um, this one, um, Was Jesus Born in, in Bethlehem? <coughs> and uh, so, you know, can, can you imagine an innocent, oh, I don't know, teenager, going online, and he types in that question, and he lands on my site, you see. (laughs) It happens all the time, and sometimes, Uh you know, and sometimes, immediately, their gut reaction is, this guy must be wrong, because, well, the Bible's right, see, Um, but uh, the more they read, you know, the more, they just can't avoid us, like they could in generations past, that, that, that we're here, we're here to stay.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The internet does play a large part in that for sure. It's a lot yeah. easier to to see differing viewpoints. Yeah. Um, so, what is the outsider test for faith?
1: Well, the outsider test for faith, you know, came up in online discussions. Um, <clears throat> one Christian apologist was saying to me that you know you you can't really understand the truth of Christianity because you're not an insider. You know, you you just can't understand the spiritual truths of God because of that. And uh, well, you know, I was an insider at one time, but you know, they they like to say that you know, since you're not now, you can't understand the spiritual truths of God. And so I got to thinking, well, you well, you know, you're right. I mean, in one sense, I'm not an insider, and and, and it takes an insider to believe. Uh, and so I um, I got to thinking about how uh, most Christians will treat those other religions that they reject as outsiders because, after all, they don't have faith in, you know, Islam, they don't have faith in Mormonism, they don't have faith in Scientology, and so what would it take to, to convince an outsider to accept one of those religions, and how did we become insiders in the first place? Those questions ruminated in my mind, and I thought to myself, well, you know what, that's the only way to properly, you know, investigate whether your own faith is true, and that is whether or not it can test the the if it can pass the test of an of being an outsider, <clears throat> you know, and that is to critically examine the own in your own inherited faith with the same level of skepticism you use when you treat those other faiths that you reject. Now atheists have been saying that for generations. Uh, I just um, over the course of years over the course of years I've developed the tests and and argued for it, and you know I've got a massive amount of Christians who would uh, would debate it, so then I could come up with additional you know counter arguments to it, and uh, the, this book is just the, the, you know, the result of of that conversation.
0: Right. Yeah. You you say that the OTS is um, actually a solution to the problem of religious diversity. Can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Well, I we, mean we, it's obvious we have religious diversity it's spread out
0: mm-hmm. all over the globe in,
1: in uh, separate different. Geographical locations. You know, I've got a little map in the back of my book. It's black and white, but uh, it still communicates the point that uh, you know, if you were born, you know, in in a Muslim country, you know, you would be a Muslim. At least, you know, it depends on the regime in place. You know, you certainly wouldn't want to talk against, you know, the Muslim faith, and that you know, that in itself can be a problem. But uh, since um, Islam is growing in democratic countries like in Europe right now exponentially um you know you you can see how that um you know the very fact that they you know are are mandated by law to to acceptism is isn't really the, the you know a defeater to the outsider to test of faith and i argue about that in the book but um <clears throat> since people are born into different religions i mean you know in in china in china you you'd likely be a um uh you know an east you know an eastern religion one of the eastern religions and you, know, you might even believe that um, some guru is god <laughs> If you were born and raised in India, you know you you might think uh, you know Hinduism is is the correct religion. So you're born into religions, and you know and, and and people who are born into these religions all think that their religions are you know true and certain. And um, some of them will even fly planes into buildings. <laughs> you know they're so certain that they're true. So with this problem we have of, of so many insiders born into religions based on you know what the mama taught them on their knee well then how can we properly evaluate the religion we we're born into You know, how can we solve this problem the problem of religious diversity how, how can we find a method that would help us all learn the truth You know about which religion is true if there is one and you know I go through in the book and I, I mentioned six different kinds of tests that people have proposed and uh, you know none of them make any sense and some of them are bad really bad That the only way, that's my argument, that the only way to know which religion is true, if there is one, is by treating your own religion with the same level of skepticism that you do the other ones that you reject. And um, Mm -hmm. so I think that if if um, there's any test, any way to solve the problem of religious diversity, is with the outsider test of faith. (laughs) Ta-da! Bobba bing, bobba and how, how have
0: people reacted to that? Like, how do Christians react when you present that idea to them?
1: Well, uh, so, some of them would say, you know, without thinking, they would say, yeah, yeah, my faith passes the outsider test of faith. Ta-da! <laughs> 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 it's a mere assert- <laughs> <laughs> It's a mere assertion. You know, they, they will say that. They will say that. But uh, as soon as they say that, as soon as they say, My faith passes the test of the outsider test. Then we can uh, have a have a real robust debate at that point. At that point, then they've acknowledged, uh, at least verbally only, that they should test their own faith with the same level of skepticism. You know, they uh, test other religions by, and so no more punting to faith when it comes to insoluble problems like. How some guy could be one hundred percent God and one hundred percent man with nothing left over—Jesus, you see. Uh, no more pretending yeah. to. You know that's. You know you really want to have some answers to that question. You know how, how is that possible? Let's discuss that reasonably. You see, no more quoting the Bible. See, because at that point you you don't know whether the Bible is true or not. Because as an outsider, you're investigating first and foremost whether the Bible's true. You see, mm-hmm. and um, so the debate can really begin once they once they say. Uh, flippantly that, um, you know, yeah, my, my faith passes that test. And, and at that point, again, the, the debate can, can begin. That's, that's one, one type of answer.
0: It's interesting because it kind of sounds like you're asking them essentially to um, leave all assumptions behind and maybe even recognize that they have assumptions. Because I think a lot of people, um, you know, begin with the assumption that, well, there is a God. So everything is going to fit into that, and your test is sort of saying, "Well, assume, just pretend for a second that you don't believe this, and then try to look at that critically."
1: Right. It, but, it, it, yeah. Right. It's it's really hard to do that. It will throw up all kinds of smoke. Yeah. It will throw up all kinds of smoke screens. Like, you know, I can't set aside all of, all of my assumptions. I mean, you know, I was born in a particular culture, and you you know, it's just you know psychologically impossible to you know, put all assumptions, you know, off the table. Uh, and, and I agree. I mean, uh, when it comes to worldviews, I mean, no one's asking them to, you know, set aside your entire worldview. I'm, I'm only talking about one specific plank in, in your set of beliefs, and that is, you know, your your religious beliefs. And I'm only asking them to um, set aside, the, you know, the assumptions as much as possible. And I do recognize it's, you know, it can be psychologically impossible for some Believers uh, who um, who just simply can't do that, but to set aside their you know their presumption that the Bible's true, set aside the presumption that Jesus died for your sins, and and, and examine all those sorts of things you know with the same level you know of skepticism they use when they examine other religions. Just just a minor set of of religious beliefs you know is all as is, is all that it asks. So uh, that's that's a, a smokescreen you see to. Keep them from, you know, really examining their faith. I think some of them, well, many of them, maybe most of them, don't really want to know whether their religion is true.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and on that point, what do you say to people who say they don't care if their religion is true? Because there are a lot of people who, believe, who say that, right? Yeah, I uh, I
1: know I know some personal family members of mine that <coughs> would would have told me, you know, uh, I I really don't have the time to investigate this or. I just prefer to believe what I do, or don't confuse me with the facts. And one, you know, one said, "I prefer, I prefer to believe, uh, and, and even if it's ignorant, I, I just prefer to believe because you know it makes me happy." Well, those are all no; those are not really good reasons for examining one's faith. But yeah, yeah, people will do that, and I, I can't help some people. <laughs> Any of them, yeah. they just can't yeah. be helped.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's- Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of people say, well, it's just symbolic. The resurrection was symbolic. But it's bizarre because that is not really what is taught. Um, If you go to, you know, whatever Sunday school or whatever it is. I mean, I imagine in seminary they didn't teach you, well, maybe Jesus didn't resurrect, but it's symbolic.
1: Yeah, that would be be the liberal answer uh, Mm -hmm. to that question. You know, since um, liberals can't make sense of... um, Someone who uh, dot who would die, and then be given a different body, um, and uh, they certainly can't say it's the same body. Certainly, if uh, those bodies are eaten by sharks or maggots, or you know, I mean, just think of all the bodies that have, have been, you know, uh, buried throughout the uh, throughout the uh, the entire you know existence on Earth. Those bodies have rotted away and turned to weeds by now, well, then, how can there be a resurrection for these these bodies? They no longer exist, and if the bodies are now in inside the stomachs of maggots mm-hmm. or wolves or sharks, you know i mean they're they're now part of you know for instance, they would actually be one and the same with with a shark body. you see so so how can this body be resurrected? so then they say things like, well, you know the, the resurrection is symbolic. Well, in one sense, they're being more reasonable than other Christians. You know, i have to grant them that. But what they're doing, what they're simply doing is they're just simply reinventing their faith in every generation to make it, you know, more sense rather than asking themselves, well, well let's look at the original basis of that, you know, belief and what was it originally believed and, um, you know, critically examining that and saying, well, then why do I need to reinvent something that's been shown false? <coughs> So he, there, there i have um i've produced a number of books one of them is called the end of Christianity, and in that book uh yaco writes a chapter called um uh, can, can god exist if yahweh doesn't <clears throat> and he goes through you know some of the things that are said in in the bible about yahweh you know he's a he was the head of a pantheon of gods and um he was sired by elion the chief you know uh, God at one time, but su- but then later superseded him, and and um, he had sons, which means he had a wife. You know, you c- you don't have sons without a wife. So this Yahweh, this Yahweh had had a wife and sons, and and the wife was edited out. She we know her to be the queen of heaven. If you look it up in the Bible, that's that's what they edited. Asherah's her name. And so we, we know this is about Yahweh, and yet no one believes in Yahweh, so then why should we believe in God? And it's a beautiful chapter. I love it. And so, you know, rather than reinvent God in every generation like the, like Christians did, you know, and then uh, Anselm did in the 11th century, rather than keep reinventing this notion of God into a monotheistic God who... You know, creator of all, and omnis- omniscient, and omnibenevolent. Well, we know he, this God is not omnibenevolent because we see him creating all kinds of disasters, you know, and, and um, things in the Bible. Rather than reinventing this stuff, like the resurrection is just symbolic, why don't we just acknowledge that the original source for our beliefs in the Bible is faulty and just abandon it. <laughs> That's the only consistent thing to do
0: right right and what about those people who say that we should
1: be just the uh, skeptical of skepticism um i don't know if you can allow this word online but bullshit
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> i mean you can
0: allow being online
1: <laughs> <laughs> i mean that's just uh, that's just uh, again bullshit mm-hmm. you know uh, how do you be how how can you actually be skeptical of skepticism, you know. I ask these Christians who say that: Are you skeptical of your skeptical conclusions that Scientology is wrong? I mean, you know, think of the absurdity of being skeptical of your skepticism that Scientil- Scientology is wrong. I mean, a double negative or, or uh, a double using that word twice in the same sentence n- negates it. So basically, you'd be saying, uh, "Well, why don't you have faith in, in Scientology?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, well, how do I judge whether I should have faith in Scientology? Well, you should do it by a means uh by means of skepticism and, and the skepticism involved would be to say, you know, show me the evidence. Uh show me some reasons. You know, make, see see if um see if it passes intellectual muster. You know, give me the sufficient evidence, sufficient objective evidence. Our minds are so woefully um inadequate when it comes to evaluating truth claims when, you know, you know, when we have a, perf- a need to believe that the only way to test whether or not these truth claims are, in fact, true is sufficient objective evidence. And they'll even debate that. They'll even say, well, why should I need sufficient objective evidence for my faith? Well, again, bullshit. <laughs> you know, it's crazy. I mean, the kinds of things that they will say in, in response, I mean, if nothing else, they should show to any reasonable person that they are not being reasonable. I mean, who in any other area of learning would say, "Well, you know, we don't need sufficient objective evidence." I, it's, right. it's, uh, it, it's 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 the mind of the deluded person. Uh, run a run a It's cognitive bias. I mean, if you don't want sufficient objective evidence for what you believe, then. Uh, well, go away, you know, and and have a nice day. I mean, I can't help you. You can't be helped.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, what about people that see religion as a sort of, um, because I I actually heard this the other day from someone, um, that religion is like love. It's a subjective experience, and that therefore it's not in the realm of objectivity.
1: Yeah, I mean, mean, um, that's reducing religion to such a low common denominator. Uh, that um you know I mean a subjective ex- experience that you know i can it can be safely uh you know just dis- be disregarded, you know I mean, I could respond to that claim, well, I have a subjective experience that uh says that your subjective experience is wrong or or I could say, or I could say um, uh, with so many different people claiming so many contradictory claims based on subjective you know, experiences, how can you really claim to know that your subjective experience is real? You know, be honest about that and, and come to terms with the fact that subjective personal experiences are only evidence of, uh, subjective personal experiences. You know, and, and the content involved in those subjective experiences, that is, you know, what did you learn from that, um, euphoric feeling? you know, um vary even by the same groups of people who claim to have them. Like Christians, for instance, they'll say, well, I have, you know, a, a, an experience of God. Well, tell me about this God. Well, uh, they'll you know go on and on about God. Tell me about the Bible. They'll go on and on. Tell me about the resurrection. Since we mentioned that, that earlier, some of those people who claim to have the same subjective experience will say, "Well, the resurrection is symbolic," like we've mentioned earlier. And others will say, from that same obje- uh, subjective experience, that the resurrection was physical. Well, then how can how can we actually know that this subjective you know personal experience has any informational content to it? Some some will say. Based on that subjective experience, that the Bible is literally true in every you know um, every sentence, and others will say, well, well, there's metaphor here, there's hyperbole there. So so these subjective experiences, basically, once one has them, uh, nearly confirm what they already believed <laughs> in the content of of that uh, experience. So so really, you know, yeah, we have subjective experiences. That's true. I might have a hallucination. I might have a dream. Uh, I might see a mirage, um, but um what we need to do is we need to test those subjective experiences with sufficient objective evidence, you know, and that's and if you don't want to do that, again, you can't be helped.
0: right. You say that actually religious views are different from political views because I think a lot of people think that they're kind of the same thing that you shouldn't really <laughs> criticize either or talk about either. um uh, but you say that's actually quite different. What's the difference between those two?
1: Well, yes. We need we need to have politics. You know, we, we just we just absolutely need um you know agreed upon rules of behavior. And that would be morality, of course, and then um you know the politics based on it, you know, that how how the which side of the street are we gonna drive? You know. And in some countries it's you know, on the left and in America it's on the right. Well we have to have that. We can't have a haphazard rule there we have to have a rule we have to have politics and it doesn't just go with you know on which side of the road you drive on but it's also has to do with how, how we're going to spend money and how much we're going to tax people and where are we going to build this highway and where we're going to uh, what kind of laws are we going to use on the off the coasts you know of america to um housing laws you know i mean you know how are we going to run our government we have to have them and every country will have them because whenever you put two people together, you're going to have to have rules of behavior, you know, including um, proper etiquette. Uh, we just have to have them. So we're going to have them whether we like them or not. We're going to have them whether they can be justified or not. We're going to have them. They're necessary. Now, when it comes and, – and, and there's evidence. There's evidence that um, <laughs> if everybody drives on one side of the road, we'll have fewer deaths. So there's evidence that shows that having these rules are beneficial, you know, to, uh, to human flourishing and survival. Uh, but when it comes to religion, we don't need them. I mean, that's the argument. I mean, we don't we don't need them. In fact, um, you know, in, in many ways, they can be harmful. And I, I'm in the, in the process of edit, editing a new book um, called Christianity Is Not Great, based on uh, Hitchens' book. Uh, God is not great, where I've gathered some scholars who are going to, you know, dismantle uh, some of the harms that Christianity has caused and is causing in today's world. Harriet Hall has agreed to write a chapter on faith-based healing. You know, I mean, the very fact that, you know, you, you, some people don't take their kids to hospitals but rely on, you know, faith, you know, faith and miracles and stuff like that it, it has killed kids, you see. So... um so religion is different than politics and morality because you don't need them. They're, they actually cause damage, and um, you know there's no there's no evidence that one set of rules or one, one one set of beliefs is is better or more beneficial to human flourishing. Now, if a religion does happen to come up with uh, something that uh, you know, helps human flourishing, and it has. Uh, then uh, that's not based on the religion itself, is what I argue. It's based on, uh, you know, just basically, you know, we, we, we human beings. I mean, religions do meet some needs. And as it meets needs, the reason why it meets needs is because that um, it's, it has some reasonable solutions to human problems unrelated to the, the faith of the religion itself. So, um, yeah, they're different. And... One's, one's not needed, one's harmful, and the other one is, is necessary, and there's evidence that it, um, that it um, creates human flourishing.
0: Mm-hmm. You actually argue that the more that believers are educated in their faith, um, I assume you mean you know the more they um, engage in theology and that kind of thing, the more deluded they tend to be. <laughs> is that something to notice from personal experience? Or?
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I recently co-wrote a book with, with Randall Rouser, Dr. Randall Rouser. He teaches in uh, at, uh, Taylor Seminary in Edmonton, Canada, and I was up there, oh, three or four weeks ago and debated him on three successive nights. I mean, he, he is, you know, exhibit A. <laughs> I mean, he's he's extremely educated in his faith, and um, he uh, he responds with the idea that his faith is still possible, despite any of my arguments. As if all he has to do is poke a pinprick of, of doubt in in my in arguments and says, well, see, there's room for my Trinitarian, incarnational, atoning, resurrecting, uh, returning Jesus' faith. <laughs> and, you know, he tries to slip that in through the cracks at every point along the way. Yeah, he's, he's definitely, and not just him, um the more educated they are then the more they they can defend unintelligent uh, beliefs now that's not always the case of course you can mention people like Hector Ablas and uh Bart Ehrman uh and uh, a lot of us who uh, Robert Price myself uh with with more and more information also comes doubt but until that um critical turning point comes where the the, the sees sees Something differently, or decides to put on new eyes, or to to mm-hmm. see the evidence. Until that happens, then yes, yes, they can be more diluted, not less. And the, the the problem with that, and it's annoying to me, Annie, is that these <laughs> these um these scholars who are still in the diluted phase will write reviews of our books as mm-hmm. if as if they never even read it in the first place. Uh, because they don't have the eyes to even understand what the arguments are. Um, Randall Rouser wrote a review of um, Stephen Law's book, Believing Bullshit. It's a really good book. And Randall Rouser wrote a review of that. And St- Stephen Law responded by saying, hey, <laughs> this is a shoddy review of my book. And he says, y- you don't even understand my arguments. He says, I'll spend a little time uh, refuting what you said, but I don't really plan to spend much more time given, given." I've got more important things to do, uh, and I've experienced this. I, yeah, I, and and so so then the believing masses of people who are reading Randall Rouser, they they will say things like, "Well, see, I don't need to read uh, Stephen Law's book now because Randall Rouser just you know just trashed him." Norman Geisler did the same thing with me. He's he's a prolific Christian apologist. He's written over sixty books, and he reviewed my book, and uh, you know it was basically a hatchet job by a scholar, and I read his review, and I said to myself, I shook my head, and I said, well, he's responding to my arguments as if he never even read them. I mean, it's really maddening. So, so the bleeding masses in the pews who read people like, you know, Geisler and Randall Rauser and, you know, I mean, uh, the others uh, that are out there, they'll, they'll, they don't actually read our work. Mm-hmm. They, they read these diluted scholars' responses. To our work. If they go into a Christian bookstore, they'll they're more likely than than anything to to simply look out look for an apologetics book that answers us rather than read what we say ourselves. And and these scholars, being more deluded, merely <coughs> confirm to the, the the believing masses that their faith is true without actually reading what we say. Because these scholars are more deluded, <laughs> it's an, it's a, it's maddening. <laughs> it's maddening.
0: Okay. Yeah, I kind of wonder, like, what is it that is taught in theology? Like, when you're in the seminary and so forth, they teach you, um, I mean, I guess the history of your religion and the Bible and so forth, but is there any critical eye at all? And if there is, is it sort of brushed aside? How does that work?
1: Well, in, in my case, uh, you know, in uh, probably about 12, 13 years of of education, we i'm trying to think if we actually brought in a, a skeptical scholars book no none were required no no skeptical book was required we would we read mainly christian voices and um that's that's about it now we would be asked to write some things, and we'd have to open the pages at least uh, a little bit <laughs> of a skeptical work. <laughs> Touch the cover of that book, see, and, and claim you read it. Uh, but yeah, they don't. They don't. Um, they don't uh, it's all. It's main, mainly uh, just simply reading each other. each Christian works, you know, for the most part, or maybe some kind. A little left. That was my experience. Um, right. But uh, so it may not be. So
0: already believe.
1: Yeah, and and these works are written by um, these scholars who I call more deluded. <laughs> so it's really reinforcing. <laughs> it just simply reinforces itself on, upon the Christian uh, educator. Now, now some. You know, that was, again, that's that's my experience. I mean, I think that uh, other seminaries and colleges do differently. Uh, Dan Lambert, when he was teaching at John Brown University, he actually brought my book, Why I Became an Atheist, into his classroom, and uh, it was required reading. So, you know, I was, you know, flattered by that. Richard Knopp at Lincoln Christian Uni- University uses that same book in uh, his seminary classes. So, you know, I mean, it, it, and that's uh, up to be applauded. It's uh, it's being honest. So, so there's various you know responses.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um why you argue at some point that uh in your book that trust is not the same thing as faith and that religious people quite often confuse the
1: two. Yeah, I, yeah, I argue in in the last chapter of the book. Is 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 that what you're referring to, the last chapter? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um So, we're at the end of the interview already? (laughs) We're at the last (laughs) chapter. We made it to the last chapter.
0: We can go on. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. Not in order, but yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, Yeah, that's, uh, you know, it is the last chapter because it's also a controversial one, and I know that, so, um, you know, that's unrelated to... To the um, the test itself, I mean, a, a Christian could say, "Well, okay, I can agree with uh, the need for testing my faith," you know, like John writes, but I don't agree with the last chapter. But if they don't agree with the last chapter, then that that says nothing at all uh, about the test itself because I've already defended it. <clears throat> but in the last chapter, I, I talk about why faith is is basically an irrational leap over the probabilities. It's a, it's a cognitive bias. It, it ought to be listed. On Wikipedia, as a cognitive bias, <laughs> I really think so, because you, you don't settle. You, yeah, because you don't settle anything by faith. I mean, I've had a lot of conversations with uh, believers, and I, I'll ask some reasonable questions about this or that, and they'll say, "But John, you just gotta have faith," <laughs> as if it's a, a virtue. You see.
0: Right. It, it, right.
1: But yeah, yeah. It's a virtue, and I, I am more virtuous than you because I can muster up the faith to believe. You see, you can't, you know, or something like that. Well, um, faith can't settle anything. I mean, j- all you gotta do is talk to the uh, people around the world who would make that same response to reasonable questions for for sufficient evidence, and when they are stumped or something like that, if they respond, but John, you gotta have faith. Well, that echoes just what the Christians say. You, you just got to have faith. Well, faith is not a not a virtue at all. It, it can uh, it can be used to defend anything. You, you know, if faith is a a virtue, then anything can be believed, yeah, or anything anything can be denied. I mean, if you don't need sufficient objective evidence for something, then um, you know, go to La La Land.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. You know that's...
0: Well, say for example that that you know that atheist. Do believe things in the sense that we believe in science, right some people equate that to being similar to believing in religion um or that we believe our mothers when they tell us something um so yeah. what yeah, but that is is not the same so no because how would you react?
1: yeah, because all of those things um you know um and, and let me just focus on on one of them love i mean they they talk about love, how do you know? You know how, how do you know that uh, you know somebody loves you? You know, I mean, you, you believe someone loves you, don't you? Well, I believe that God loves me, like a parallel case. Right. Um, well, I I can believe someone loves me. Uh, take my mother, for instance. Uh, I mean, I I don't believe it. Uh, I know it. <laughs> I mean, she mm-hmm. showed me all kinds of you know all through my life, uh, you know uh, that she loves me. My brothers, likewise. Um, I mean, these are things that we can know based on uh, on the probabilities, <clears throat> and uh, no, nothing's certain. I mean, I guess it's always possible. My mom has uh, deceived me for 58 years into thinking that that she loves me when she really hates my guts. You know, I mean, I guess that I guess that is possible, but it's such a minimal possibility. You know, it doesn't even register on a scale. You see. Because you can te- you can test whether someone loves you based on what they do for you, based on what they say to you, based on whether they're talking behind your back and so uh, or not, and so you know these sorts of things based on the evidence you see, and if i if believers would approach God in the same way. As we do when it comes to you know knowing whether someone loves you or not, then they would have to weigh the instances of of evil that take place in their lives. I mean, uh, objectively, and um, you know whether there's evidence to even believe in the first place, or you know, the basis for that belief in the Bible itself. <clears throat> and they would say, well, you know what, the probability that this God exists, you know, is uh, is minimal, you know, at best, you know, if they were being honest. So um, yeah, you can you can trust somebody based on on the probabilities. In fact, I, I say it this way. We should think exclusively in terms of the probabilities. And so something either has more or less probability to, to it. We just don't have English words to distinguish those probabilities when we say things like, you know, I know my mom loves me. Well, if I were to assign a probability value to it, then it would be probably, you know, something like 99.999%. You know, but and when it comes to whether or not the sun rises in the morning or, or will rise in the morning, I can assign the same kind of probability. You know, I go and I talk about that in the book. Um, so all we have to do is assign uh, words like uh, you know extremely probable or more probable than not to our words. We just we just can't do that with the English language. So when we say we know something you could always respond by saying, well, <clears throat> to what degree do you know that? And then we'd be talking. You know, Then, then we'd have a reasonable discussion. But to say, I, be- I believe something like God exists just as much as you believe the sun rises will rise in the morning, is that word again, bullshit. It's not the same. It's not the same by far. Mm-hmm.
0: And in fact, one of your major criticisms is that Christians demand that unbelievers prove that God is impossible before they consider it to be improbable.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really is. That, that, I was talking about Randall Rouser earlier. I mean, he's he's demanding that I prove that his faith is in, impossible. And, um, well, I just say that's an impossible standard of uh, proof. And um, <laughs> that's a, that's a deluded mind again. Um, <laughs> and uh, well, I think a couple of reasons why they, they do that is because they have a need to believe, and so if they can find a little uh, pinprick of, of doubt, you know, then they can just walk right through that with their incarnational Trinitarian faith, you know. <clears throat> but, um, I think that the notion of hell almost requires it because if I could be wrong and I leave the faith, then I could, uh, you know, be, be tortured for, for eternity. <clears throat> so, because of that belief and, um, because of something I call the omniscience escape clause that, you know, the omniscient God can solve any problem. You know, like you ask, well, how did Jesus death on the a, on a cross, you know, pay for my sins? There's really no reasonable answer to that question. But if they respond by saying, well, God knows why. You know, God knows why it was, you know, necessary. That's called the omniscience escape clause, and, you know, mm-hmm. it, it solves all problems. Since that they,
0: It's
1: got it, a plan. What's that? Yeah, God has a plan. <laughs>
0: Yeah.
1: A point. So since um, since you have that those twin beliefs of of hell and the omniscience escape clause, then that's what they're actually doing. They're, they're they're asking me to prove their faith is false before they will come to think it's improbable, which is reversing the standards of proof.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. It's almost like a trial where if you can argue that there's reasonable doubt, then that means God exists. That's the logical conclusion. Right. Well, not. Just God, but they're God, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, coming back to the resurrection, since that's a topic that I find interesting, um, you have an interesting view of that. Um, you say at one point that all it requires is one liar for Jesus. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yep. Um, I, I, I I fleshed that argument out in a whole chapter uh, for why I became an atheist, the revised version. And, um, it's you know, if we're talking about whether or not uh, a body was reanimated three days after being crucified and walked around, you know, Jerusalem and convinced people that a miracle had occurred, if we're, if we're comparing that hypothesis with the one that um, perhaps the Gospel of Mark invented the uh, the, the empty tomb sequence... If we're comparing those two hypotheses, then the idea that Mark created the empty tomb scene at the end of, of his gospel uh, wins hands down. I mean, there are there are a lot of uh, that is the first line for Jesus. You know, um, all it takes is one little gospel disseminated through uh, largely Ill- illiterate people who would uh, who, who would. Who would possibly believe anything based on a vision? You know, um, we know that Paul is a visionary. He he saw visions, you know, here and there. He even even uh, claims that the Damascus Road conversion was based on on a vision uh, to uh, to Festus. You know, he says, uh, "Why should I be dis- disobedient to this vision I've had?" So he says, "Damascus Road experience was a vision." So with people who believe that visions are real and uh, they communicate divine truth. Then Mark might have had a vision, I mean, the author of Mark might have had a vision, and, uh, hey, this, this solves the problem of, you know, why Jesus isn't walking, you know, among us. I mean, uh, you know, um, uh, and, uh, the, the empty tomb, you know, sequence solves that. I mean, he, he's, I mean, why, why Jesus isn't, you know, still dead? I mean, why isn't he still somewhere? Well, because we have the evidence of the empty tomb. And, you know, this solves that problem, and, you know, based on the idea of the empty tomb, you see how many Christian apologists use that in today's world to argue that this is evidence that Jesus arose from the dead, and it could be based on nothing more than a lie. And that, you know, there's a lot of things that uh, took took place and take place every day that are extremely rare. And I point to Oprah Winfrey's discovery that she has a, uh, a half-sister late in life. But what are the odds of that? Well, extremely extremely rare. I mean, what are the odds that I might have a twin brother, you know, that I haven't known before. My mom never told me about. Well, extremely extremely rare. But it wasn't a miracle, you see. These these extremely <coughs> rare types of events happen and so even though it seems it might seem unlikely that Mark would create the empty tomb sequence, um it's far more likely that that could have been the case rather than that a miracle took place, by far. Yeah.
0: So, if people want to read your book, if they're interested, um, where should
1: they go? Is it on Amazon? Is it in those bookstores? Yeah, it's in book- it's in bookstores. It's on Amazon, yeah. yeah you can check out my blog, debunkingchristianity.blogspot.com, and there are links to all my books. Yep. Yeah. read them, comment on them. Pass them okay. out.
0: All right. Um, thank you so much for the very interesting conversation,
1: John. Well, thanks, Annie. Thanks for calling.
0: You have been listening to an interview with John W. Loftus, author of The Outsider Test for Faith How to Know Which Religion Is True. This is your hostess, Annie Sipipipaya. Thank you for listening to New Books in Secularism.